and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. And I'm Anna. And with us today, we've got Matt. Matt, welcome. Hi. So happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. So would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you came to be here in Manchester? Yeah, sure. So I'm Matt Grisbard, and um, I've come here from San Francisco, California. I went to San Francisco State University and um, got a scholarship, a grant, a studentship to come to Manchester, which is really the only reason that I'm here. It's a long way from home, but um, here I be. And you're a history PhD second year, is that right? Yes, that's right. Could you tell us a little bit about your research, about your project? Sure. So uh, I work on the history of children and childhood, a teeny, teeny, tiny field. Specifically, I work on uh, material culture and play in that field. And so what kinds of things are you, what have you worked on this year? So this year, so my chapters are, they sound frivolous compared to many other types of history, but, but it is an important aspect. So my, this year I worked on um, children's relationship with the sweet shop in Victorian Britain. And then I also worked on children's relationship with uh, gollywog dolls as well, which is a highly contentious object, as I think most people in the UK know. But I didn't, so here we are. Um, and then at the moment, I'm working on children's relationships with animals. So things like uh, stuffed animals, things like uh, pets, and representations of animals. Wow, so quite a diverse sort of set of things. I'm quite surprised to hear that this is a like a very small area of history. I feel like uh, when you study the Victorians, at least in the UK, there's a lot of stuff about children, but I guess it's more about school. Right, so maybe I'm getting academic too early. No, but, please do. Um, the, the way that children's history tends to appear in most of the literature tends to be more along the lines of people talking about children or people talking about adults talking about children. And that leads to... Uh, what we in the field talk a little bit, um, well, something that we call islanding. And islanding is when we kind of divorce children from a wider society and we make these little islands in which they are allowed to be. So things like education and the church and the home and private space, these are taken out of the wider context of, say, the street and society and where do kids, where do we see kids in the everyday? So what I do is uh, try to reinsert children back into those narratives, specifically from the perspective of the child themselves. And you're taking a material cultures approach to that. Yeah, and it's really important to use material culture because um, kids don't write or they don't write very well. Um, or I guess they write on little chalkboards in the Victorian era. <laughs> yeah, they write on slate, which then gets shattered and thrown in a privy. To, for me to find in the archaeological society or the London Archaeology Museum 200 years later. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But um, a lot of children's communication is nonverbal or non-recorded, and especially the kids that I look at who are working-class children specifically, not middle-class children, a lot of that material has been lost. So using material culture allows me to get at this history, which is otherwise unavailable to most historians. So you mentioned the archaeological museum, but where are you finding this material culture? The good thing is that everyone has a childhood in many aspects. Some people argue that they didn't, but we can get into that whole philosophical debate 
at another time. But um, because childhood is so appealing to us and it has such social value, there are lots of museums and lots of preserved objects in collections. So the National Trust, um, the Museum of, of Childhood at Sudbury, is very, very good. So many sources. The VNA uh, Museum of Childhood in London is also really good. And a lot of times, if you just go searching for things that you didn't realize were toys, or you go looking at pictures, you see a lot of things you wouldn't expect to be retained. For example, um, I was looking at toys the other day, trying to come up with some animals, um, and animals are difficult because stuffed animals are actually a very recent trend. It's not something that we would expect to see really before the 1880s um, in, in large amounts. So I typed in stuffed animal, <laughs> professional research skills, um, and came across these two elephants. And these elephants are going to be the basis of this next chapter, just because they just happen to show up. Who did they belong to? Well, well, <laughs> since the first elephant comes from the National Trust, I'm not 100% sure who it belonged to. At this point, it was donated by a very wealthy patron. Um, so I'm not really looking at that one, but the other one comes from... Ealing, London in 1900, and his name is Pompey. And Pompey um, was made by the Chatley family in 1900 as a result of a trend of elephants during this time. So I'm looking at that trend, actually, to kind of explore that relationship and what that tells us. That's really interesting to think about what the elephant must have meant in that time period in Britain as well because there's sort of connections to empire but I guess also if you were living in London it probably more refers to the zoo and to other encounters with animals that you just wouldn't see in the UK. Yes absolutely and, and because of both of those contexts that you've described um, and because of also the way that Pompey is dressed because Pompey has three suits of clothes. He does. He has two suits with kilts, and he has one sailor suit, and he has a navy suit with brass buttons. And this, to me, suggests that Pompey was a very middle-class elephant. So, when you talk about um, the elephant in the imperial context and the elephant in the London Zoo context, and then you think about these clothes, you start to kind of think, well, what does an elephant mean in that middle-class context, and why is it important? And that's actually what I'm tracing now, the, the different meanings of him in different spaces. Because most of this material culture was produced by adults for children, do we see you know, ever children altering those objects to kind of fit them better, to fit their understanding of what they want from a toy or from a space, like, I don't know, a drawing on a wall or... So where does children's agency yes. come into these, the creation of these toys? I think I should start by saying that most of the toys that I actually look at are not produced by adults. Or if they are produced by adults, they because they are produced by adults doesn't really change the way that I think about them as mm -hmm. much. Because I'm looking at them from a child's perspective. So, you know, there's just there's a little bit of nuance there that I need to be careful with. In terms of the toys that children produce, I have another chapter on that, actually. I've written about dolls. And part of the, uh, the doll chapter is talking about how children create toys to prioritize their own needs. Um, and a lot of times they create toys based on the uh, world that they see around them. So, for example, while I was at 
the Museum of London's Archaeology Archive, I found these two, what I call dolls, but which what um, a lot of other people don't didn't really recognize as dolls. Um, and they're these two table legs, which have faces carved into them, and they're carved in this very strange way, and they look a little macabre, but they're they're dolls. And um, you can see the the way that kids were interested in weight distribution. And you can see that the way that they were trying to emulate the weight distribution of, say, a baby in that doll, because children, uh, working class children during the Victorian era were largely in charge of childcare in working class homes. So this little bit, it's a different dynamic from, say, a middle class home where a nanny or an adult woman was almost always in charge of children. So children would not have produced the dolls in the same aesthetic if we will. They might have had baby dolls, but they would have looked very much like babies, and those would have been, like you say, created by adults, specifically in order to um, teach young girls how to look at other children. Whereas these dolls, they're uh, very crude. Some are table legs, some are potatoes. There's lots of different objects that are used to, to replicate the sensation of holding a baby. What would you say has been your biggest challenge uh, in finding the sources that you want to use. The hardest part about writing about childhood in general is always combating your view of what a child is versus mm. how um, a child might see the world. So me looking at a toy, say like the gollywog, I as an adult understand what that object is in the context that it's in and how it moves and why it's an important tool. But it's hard to divorce yourself from that political context and from, obviously, the racist context that it comes from and put yourself in the shoes of a kid who thinks that not only is this doll great, um, but you have to think about what are they doing with it. And because I'm not a child anymore, and because none of us in this room are children anymore, uh, it can be very hard to capture that perspective in a, a realistic, feasible, and believable manner. And how, what techniques have you come up with to, to help you with that? So I um, make a lot of the toys that I examine. I find, in some cases, I find uh, newspaper articles or periodicals or just instructions for how to make these objects. So I go back in the, the archive and make them myself and play with them myself. Um, so for example, being very careful here, um, I found an article discussing how to make a gollywog toy, which I then followed. Obviously, I am not a racist person as much as I can be. So um, instead of using the materials that would have been, say, contemporary to the time, to that point, um, I just used a sock that I had and made a cat. Um, and then from there, you know, it's still very similar material. It's just got less of those connotations. But then I can manipulate the doll and feel how it felt um, and see how big it is. Handling these objects is very important where, where I can. I've made potato dolls. I recently handed by my supervisor a sheep bone wrapped in a piece of muslin because she was very excited. So she went to the, the Museum of Childhood in Edinburgh and saw bone dolls and needed me to have this sheep bone to make a sheep bone doll. So I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I make a lot of them. I bought a trundling hoop when I wrote my chapter on it, and I trundled the hoop and learned a lot about 
um, mostly how hard it is, um, how much effort goes into it, how fit these children were, and how hungry they had to have been. So yeah, a lot of it is experiential. That's a really interesting methodology to uh, to think about. And I think, um, so my work is obviously on visual cultures and uh, photography, and I find that the questions that I struggle to answer when I'm at a conference or something is when people ask these technical questions about the photography, right? You know, like how close was the photographer or what equipment was she using or something like that. And I can answer with what I know, but because I don't, I genuinely don't have the experience of handling a film camera, it's, it feels like this really big gap in my experiential knowledge. So it's interesting to think about that uh, experiential methodology as a way of actually producing new knowledge about something that happened in the past. Was that always your intention for the project or was it something that you sort of started the project and then were like, well, I need to make a potato doll? Well, obviously you need to make a potato doll. If you if you need joy in your life, you need a potato doll. I think I came into it wanting to write about play and knowing that play was important. So, so the reason that I'm doing this work actually is because I started my career my academic career writing about children in the Holocaust. And one of the most influential people in that literature, for me, in that literature was George Eisen. And he's recently becoming um, more important in the field as a whole right now in my field um, because he wrote about play in the Holocaust. He wrote about the way that there, there appears to be discrepancies between children's experience of um, this Holocaust spaces and Holocaust emotions and the way that adults function in that space and experience that space as well. And there's lots of contention over that in the, the field because you run into this danger when you're talking about atrocity and tragedy and children and play because it relativizes that experience and suggests that it was not so bad because these children were playing. Um, so from there, that kind of carried into this, what I'm doing now. After I did that work on George Eisen, um, I found that there were just some parts lacking. And to move the project be beyond the theoretical is really, really important. And I'm just a hands-on kind of person. I'm very craftsy. And I can't think of a way, I can't think of a methodology which would capture kids' experience in a better way, just because they're nonverbal. So much of it is nonverbal, so much of those interactions. It's very interesting the way that history can be done in so many different ways and through experience as well as through archival documents um, and visual sources. And mm. um, especially when we kind of think about how you interact with object, objects in particular spaces. Um, and this kind of leads me to my next question, which is, do you find that children experienced material culture differently in the rural areas and in urban areas? Because I would imagine urban space is quite different for play, um, because there are other people it might be seen as more dangerous and more exciting especially since in the period that you were talking about yeah. there is urbanization yeah 
and there is kind of changes in these experiences. Mm. So there's lots of folk histories and local histories written about rural types of play, traditional types of play. Mm-hmm. And you find that a lot of children play in very similar ways. Psychologically, there's work done on developmental, uh, the ways that kids develop certain types of play. And you do see commonalities there. Because I look at working class children, um, a lot of my children are urban. So I haven't really come up into that problem. Yeah, and a lot of the, the kids in rural areas spend a lot more time working just because, you know, they tend to live on farms um, and they tend to be distant from a lot of the, the larger the ideas that I'm talking about. So I'm afraid that <laughs> I can't really answer that yeah. as thoroughly as I wish I could. So we also like to talk to our guests just about their PhD experience and their life as a PhD student to sort of learn more about the sort of the whole process of getting a PhD. So one of the things that always puts me in awe of you, Matt, is that in addition to uh, teaching and uh, working on your PhD, you also found the time this year to start uh, Encounters, which is the new history journal, uh, the student-led history journal for the University of Manchester. So I'd like to hear more about just how you did it. <laughs> just how? Um, like logistically or time um, Emotionally. Balance? Emotionally. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, Encounters is the easiest part of my PhD. It's uh, probably one of the more fun parts. I mean, I do love teaching. Um, but I... So I actually come from... Um, the school that I came from before we had a student-led journal... And I was uh, an assistant editor and then became an associate editor and then became a managing editor. And I went through the whole process. And it was amazing. And it was lovely. And um, I just kind of fell in love with it. And it taught me a lot of really important organizational skills. So when I came here, um, I just assumed that there was one. So I was like, oh, where's the journal? Do we have a journal? And um, I learned that we do have a journal. And it's run by some very, very talented uh, undergraduates. And I thought to myself, like, this is a good journal, but this is not the kind of journal that I came from. So you're talking about the Manchester Historian. Yes, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But what I really wanted to produce was um, an academic journal, somewhere where students could have the opportunity to uh, publish their academic work. Because that's, in many parts, what got me where I am. So when I was... uh, a master's student. No, my last year of my undergrad, I published an article in our school journal. And that was, um, it got to go on my CV and I could talk about how I went through this process of review and I learned all these amazing things. And um, then I, that got me into my master's. It was part of the, part of my CV. So it looked better on the academic resume or whatever. And, you know, it makes you look more professional. So I did that, and then I wanted students here to have that opportunity, having done that and having produced it. And my background is actually in this kind of student organizing sport role. So I've made one here, and emotionally it's been great, because the first semester I was here, I came here from sunny San Francisco, got to Manchester, and there's just a block of gray. And I went, wow, is it like this forever? And everyone went, yes, it is. So I got a little depressed. And I went to see my GP and went, I'm feeling sad. And she said, you need friends. And I was like, okay, I can do friends. 
So I went out and tried to join a bunch of societies and none really clicked. So I said, I will make my own, which I'm sure is not what she meant, <laughs> but that's what happened. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been great. Uh, I really, really love working with the editors. Even oh, thank you. Oh, Aww. yes. <laughs> so me and Anna are both editors for Encounters for the homeless men. <laughs> well, I'm curious to ask you guys, did you enjoy the process? Uh, it's It's been very interesting. I've certainly learned a lot um, in terms of what to expect from the peer review process by being on both sides of it at the same time. Uh, it's also... You know, most of the time it's very manageable with the workload that we have in first year, which is a, an absolute blessing to be able to do something different uh, and read other people's work and kind of uh, get a feel for what other people are doing academically without it having to be very full on. It's just a thing that you're doing. Yeah, I think I think that's what has been great about Encounters and this is what has been great about this experience of making a podcast is the fact that you get to kind of learn about what are other things that people do. Yeah. Um, which is which is really, really fun. And I think also looking at somebody else's writing makes you think about your own writing and how you can be better at it. And wording. Wording things, especially when you're kind of... You want to be nice, but you also usually have a fairly strong opinion on the matter and you're like how do I word it being nice I can uh, cut this out if you don't want this to make it to air but I happen to know that Anna is my peer reviewer because she I can't figure you guys keep, and figure it out can't keep a secret uh, and I will say it I was very Georgia I paper I was so careful when I was assigning this and I was like they're gonna figure it out <laughs> they're gonna talk one of them's gonna talk Anna <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I didn't know for sure, and it was very relevant to the conversation we were having, the argument that is in the paper. <laughs> Stop talking to people. Stop making friends. <laughs> I'm, v- I'm very sorry. Um, but That's okay. We did the same thing. We yeah. Old journal. We I would mean, all ask each other, and then we'd figure out and say, "We got a horrible paper. Who wrote on the house?" And then everyone goes around and comes back and says. I'm glad that I didn't find out in the context of my paper being horrible, but I will say that Anna's com- comments have always been extremely good and have helped me to become a better... I, I, I also did in the past like highlight a whole section and write, this is so Marxist. Um, <laughs> I, I, I deleted the comment afterwards because I didn't feel it was useful to, to developing, but it was more like a running thought. Yeah, well, what can I do? I wasn't trying to write a Marxist paper. It's just what comes out. <laughs> I bleed red. <laughs> yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, all people do. That's <laughs> that's how blood works. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I think also it's been really useful finding out about using track changes a bit more because I think next year when we'll be doing marking, it will be very useful. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because I I can't envision myself possibly doing all of that marking and writing it no no you won't be no. doing that no no hell no well i'm glad that it was useful to you guys yeah the yeah. training was really nice as well matt did this really good positive training session where the uh powerpoint slides had pictures of cute animals including a cute baby ferret that was the best yeah it was it was it was great 
all this engagement pedagogy, guys. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was it was very very nice and very useful and I think it was one of the kind of experiences that then got me thinking, oh, I can organize something and do yes, something. Yes, absolutely. So this is yeah. one of the other goals of the the journal was to um, build a community in the department because again when i came here and then i was told to make friends i thought okay that will be good it should be very easy to make friends in the department and i've actually found that that's not really the case if you don't come in with a really close uh cohort so hopefully uh through the journal and through the podcast we might see some more mixing of folks of different um levels and some more interesting research going on and just kind of being excited about research instead of having it just be a chore yeah, I think we both uh, on the podcast quite frequently talk about how much of a benefit it's been to us in our first year just because it forces you to meet people. It makes you learn about people's research. Now, when I see someone who's been on the podcast, I know that I can easily have a conversation with that person because I know who they are, what they're working on. It uh, makes those connections a lot easier to form. And yeah, it's given us the confidence in our own project, this being our project and then the journal as well and then Anna you're also doing uh working on an event and I'm working on an event as well so we're both just we're super interdisciplinary which is why I haven't done any work at all on my thesis (laughs) Um, the one thing I really wish is that we had more people from outside history we're really tapping our history networks for the podcast it's been very very productive and I think because we want to get more and more people involved in the podcast for them to eventually take over it in our later years. Yeah, succession planning. Yeah, so so we want people to be able to mix like that. And we were also thinking of organising a social event. Um, this is the podcast. hard part, the social. You just get mm. so wrapped up because we as PhD students have so yeah. much to do that we yeah. sat there going, oh, right, I have a journal staff. Maybe we should have a party. <laughs> yeah, we should. Yeah, yeah, we're working on it. We're working Launch on it. Launch party. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the social part is always the hardest part to to pull off. I think we've got quite lucky with our cohort. We've got uh, the this year's history cohort is uh, get on really well. Yeah, and hang out with each other a reasonable amount, more than you would expect. <laughs> <laughs> we just drag each other out for coffee when we're supposed to be working. That's that's basically it. Well, yeah, that's the other reason why I haven't done any work on my thesis. I was away for a month. Yeah, I nearly died. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't drink anything because you're my usual reminder. <laughs> I was like a little dried up raisin. <laughs> so the final thing that we ask our guests about is for any funny anecdotes from your research life. You mentioned well, when we were talking before recording that you've got quite a few, so I'd really like to hear about those. Well, I think the one that I, I'm i excited about most right now is, so I'm looking into pets. And while I was looking into pets, I started doing research and I assumed that most people had cats and dogs. And of course I was wrong as per usual, people cat, dogs, rabbits, all kinds of things. But there was one little girl who had a chicken and her way of playing with this chicken was taking the chicken, kind of picking it up, hurling it in the air, and saying, oh, and she just makes noise at the chicken, um, and it falls down, and it runs away, and she goes, yes, we've talked. This was a good conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That is uh, extremely wonderful. 
If she was able to do that more than once, it must have been a very tolerant chicken. I don't know if she did. I think this might have been a daily ritual yeah. after which the chicken learned better. Yeah. I, could. I, I also think that the chicken may have been injured at some point during the chicken tossing. Chickens are surprisingly robust. My, I, uh, my family have had chickens for quite a long time and my dad will always like they won't let anyone pick them up except for my dad which is classic animal behavior where they find them the member of the household who likes them the least uh and then immediately like yeah you you're our best friend so they'll run over to my dad until he picks them up and then he does like to put them down you do just throw them even though they can't fly they can break their fall really well and they'll just kind of like they kind of flump down like a very heavy marshmallow Maybe that's what the girl was trying to get the chicken to do, to open up the wings. No, she was trying to talk to it. Yep. <laughs> she was absolutely talking to it. <laughs> we had another, there was another one where um, uh, the, there was a woman talking, remembering that it was basically a rite of passage to fall into the local river and be fished up by the boatman. Apparently he had a hook. And if you didn't fall into the river, in her words, you haven't done nothing with your life. So <laughs> you just go over there, fish him out, and toss him away. <laughs> oh, this is very out of Green Gables. Like, cause Did Anne fall? I have not read this book. Did she fall in a river? Um, at one point, I think she gets Spoilers stuck in the river. And she gets rescued by Gilbert who's a boy who was also teasing her for her ginger hair and then they they fall in love and get married uh, that's much Sorry, later on river. Uh, I think it was either a river or a lake something like that it's set in Canada yeah it's set in Canada oh this is a Netflix thing no it's a well it's a book but there might be a Netflix thing I think there is oh. a Netflix thing for it but it's quite different from the book oh. yes but you can you can watch the Netflix thing. It's I also the quite Netflix good. Thing. Yeah, I I think I think there is an episode of Anne of Green Gables where she gets stuck in the middle of the river or something like that. This is horrific, though. Mm. The idea of getting of you know four year old falling into a river. <laughs> yeah, but if you don't do it, then you just haven't made anything of your life. <laughs> I where I grew up, we um like the when it snowed, if you'd go sledding, there was uh this little valley that had a stream running down the the middle of it the stream's probably about like uh maybe six feet across and then it's quite steep so you'd go uh, with your sled when it snowed and you'd sort of you had to come to a stop before you went into the stream and the sledding session ended when you went into the stream which was like an inevitability it would happen <laughs> and it was ice cold <laughs> wait, wait wait how did you stop so, I've, okay, I've never been in desert. I've never done any sledding. <laughs> okay, so imagine a sled. It's like kind of tray-shaped, right? Like yes, it's got yes, a little yes. handle at the front. And the handle lets you throw your weight a little bit so you can steer it. So what you need to do is before you get to the stream, you need to throw your weight to the side quite a lot so that you make a hard turn and kind of do like a skid stop. You throw off a bit of snow. It's quite like, yeah. whoosh. That's what it looks like if you do it right. Uh-huh. If you do it wrong, then you mainly just, like, the whole thing tips over, but you still stopped because you've yeah. just fallen off your uh, side. Usually you just try to get, because the the kind of, the top of the slope will usually be quite hard by this time because quite a few children slid down it. But when you get to the softer bit of the snow, this is where you try to kind of tip yourself over and you fall into the snow and the snow is quite soft. So it's fine. So where's the fun? 
oh, then going really fast. Yes. Oh, I see. You go really fast. It's like the fastest you can go under your own impetus as a child. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's... It's like freewheeling your bike or something. You were in Fran- San Francisco, right? Like, imagine freewheeling your bike down no. the highest hill. It's that. I've it's- seen enough people get hit by bikes. I don't ride those <laughs> yeah. in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, it's those. It's those kind of things of being able to go faster than you can go in your normal life, and also you kind of have to work for it because you have to climb back up the hill and stuff. So it's quite like you're starving by the end. And- cold and once you fall in the stream you're also wet (laughs) in summer camps in soviet union there was this tradition sometime mid-summer there'll be the neptune day where um a person will be like dressed up as neptune or the god of the sea uh, and then people will get tossed into the water that's fun yeah it's fun i made as a kindergartner we made um, tumbleweed snowmen. Oh my god, you're desert child. This is so you're desert. Little yeah. baby cowboy kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, this is the thing. I played football at minus 20 as a kindergartner. No. <laughs> you're dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like the perfect place to end the podcast <laughs> with Matt dismissing Anna. <laughs> I'm gonna go. Yeah, off you go. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for being our guest this week. It's been really interesting to learn more about your research and also to hear your uh, funny stories as well. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you, Anna. And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens in the podcast stays on the podcast. <laughs> Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence.